one of the underrated elements of Springsteen is Springsteen as a, for lack of a better word, manager. Yes. Like, I think that part of the reason that both E Street and the other band have been so great over time is that he kind of can look at a group of people, listen to their tapes and see where their strengths are and help build a band that capitalizes on the, on that stuff. So there's an element of him just kind of willing them to greatness. And I think there's also an element of like, these are very talented musicians and that's right. why they get picked out by Bruce Springsteen. And welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. And uh, today we are talking Bruce, but we also are talking greatest movie ever made. He says with uh, italics, maybe? Question mark. <laughs> uh, joining me in a return engagement uh russ was here last july russ Burlingame, welcome back to the show thank you thanks for having me uh i as i was saying to you off mic uh i've been wanting to come back but i'm the kind of neurotic who doesn't feel welcome unless i have a reason <laughs> well i i want you to know i say this officially anytime you just even come up with hey i just i have this random wild blank thought about bruce or music jesse can i join the show so I, you're always welcome what's funny is I, I every so often i do and i always try to figure out is there a way for me to retrofit this for my day job can i can i turn yeah. this into a comicbook.com story somehow yeah <laughs> absolutely so you're always welcome to join me so uh for those of you who may uh, for those of you who came late in the spirit of uh the fandom give us a give us tell us a little about yourself uh, I'm an entertainment journalist. For the last 20 years, I've been writing about the geek space. Uh, and so right now, I'm on year 11 of uh, working for comicbook.com. And if you've heard of us, it was probably in the last few years as we've gotten like huge. Uh, I've, I've been there since there was 13,000 people reading and nobody, you know, you would tell them the name and they were like, oh, so you draw comics? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, which I don't. I'm a reporter who covers that industry. And adjacent media which you know for me adjacent media is i cover a lot of the arrowverse shows and stuff like that i am mm-hmm. a tv writer primarily mm-hmm. and i like to dip back into comics as often as i can because i love them yeah. but uh i've been a, a, a springsteen fan on, on the one hand like as long as i can remember because growing up my dad had the tapes in the car all the time uh, i think i told you last time uh, I remember thinking as a kid that for you was like a wildly successful song because it was, it was sure it was a song that was just on all the time. And it was really catchy. Uh, and so like uh, I, I remember thinking like that was a huge that, that was Springsteen's big hit, uh, <laughs> which in 1984 probably was not a widely held conception by anybody. <laughs> uh, but uh, so I've 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 been around his music my whole life but i really uh became a hardcore fan when he did the uh the mtv plugged show which of course is ironic because it means that when i took the next step into my like super fandom it was with the scab band yeah <laughs> um, but, but you know uh, it was just timing like uh, was. i was that age i just um 
I just was talking to Peter Chanka yesterday, um, you know, does blogness on the edge of town. And um, my most successful episode mm-hmm. by like 50% downloads is when Peter joined me to talk about human touch and lucky town. Nice. By far. I mean, you're like, why? What about that? <laughs> um, and, you know, Russ, what's interesting is over the past probably three or four months, I've had people on that talk about their first show was the other band mm-hmm. or how much they said, I know they get short shift, but that was actually a pretty solid tour. And that yeah. was a pretty good band. I mean, I know that's, and they all kind of say, I know that's kind of, you know, heresy, but, uh, you know, and they, and to mix our sports metaphors, right. It's almost like, you know, like when LeBron joins a team and wills them to the finals, it's like Bruce took this other group and willed them to just be amazing. Uh, which is kind of funny, but yes, I, I love, I, I will say to a certain extent, there's also the element of like, one of the underrated elements of Springsteen is Springsteen as a, for lack of a better word, manager. Yes. Like, I think that part of the reason that both E Street and the other band have been so great over time is that he kind of can look at a group of people, listen to their tapes and see where their strengths are and help build a band that capitalizes on the, on that stuff. So there's an element of him just kind of willing them to greatness. And I think there's also an element of like, these are very talented musicians and that's right. why they get picked out by Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> you know, and I think a good sign of that is when they're doing the sign request, right? Mm-hmm. That he's able to, uh, especially when it was the E Street Band on steroids or the E Street Orchestra, right? When they were doing the Wrecking Ball yeah. and High Hopes where he had the horns and the backup singer, singers, that they were able to get all these different pieces, you know, from a sign request, you know, that, uh, yeah. uh, so that's pretty crazy. Um um all right hey let's do a springsteen quick hits um so letter to you your thoughts it's it's been almost six months now since we've had it what's your thoughts i I loved it uh i think it's what's funny about letter to you for me is that it went the opposite way that uh western stars did for me Mm -hmm. which is with with western stars it took me a a bit to kind of totally warm up to it like i thought it was a good album but it wasn't tickling my my spirit yeah. And so like for the first few months I would listen to it sporadically and then like eventually something clicked and I was like, okay, yeah. And then I was really into it for a while after that. Um, with Letter to You, it was kind of the opposite. It was like I immediately connected with it emotionally. I love the record. And then I kind of played it to death. And now in the time since those first couple of months, I've been playing it with less frequency, mostly just because uh, I feel like I burned the burned a hole in the record <laughs> yeah no i get that yeah uh but it's 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 funny because it was the opposite exactly the opposite of the previous studio record and uh that, that kind of thing funny. Always, yeah did you get to see the documentary on apple i did uh but i was exhausted that night and i okay. was in and out of consciousness okay um, i will say it the the bits that i remember it strikes me as i like what Zimney does with these these films, but uh, as like a movie guy, mm-hmm. I feel like they always, even the features, they always still kind of feel like uh, bonus material on a DVD. Interesting. Like, That's not. I I can see that point. 
yeah that's that's interesting i think part of that is like inevitable because when you have somebody who's employed by thrill hill doing these things it becomes like well you're gonna you're gonna toe the company line because that's what you're there to do and uh i don't think that there's anybody who would make a documentary about the making of a springsteen record and not be a fan Sure. But I feel like there's a difference between being a fan and being an employee. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I thought it was really well done. I think he's a, he's a very talented editor and filmmaker. Yeah. Um, but it always feels just a little bit at a remove to me, like almost okay. sterile in a way that like okay. bonus features tend to feel to me. And I, I don't, I can't put my finger on why, but like every every time uh, one of these things comes out and it's him, I'm just like, oh, so I know already what it's gonna kind of look and sound like. When when <clears throat> the Jeep ad came out, I at first thought it was fake, you know. Uh, and you know from because you're in the fandom the way I mm-hmm. am, you know, there are a lot of creative fans out there that will take outtakes yeah. and things and will build uh, trailers for movies that don't exist. Um, yeah. Doctor Who episodes that don't exist. And yeah. so this looked so much like a outtakes from Western stars. It really I was did. Like, yeah. Are, are, is this a fake? Did some really good fan, you know, piece this yeah. together? Um, so, um i gotta get your thought the jeep ad you know any hot springsteen opinions it was a weird it was a weird one for me because like i i definitely i can appreciate what he's trying to do there yeah um but it did kind of feel like this is the first time that you hear bruce uh doing his like his boundless optimism thing usually when he's doing that when he's talking about you know the charting the distance between the American dream and American reality. He has a way of making it sound accessible to everybody. Yeah. And in the Jeep ad, he really sounded like a 70 year old white guy for the first time. Yeah. Like, I think, I think that's a fair. You know, and, and it, it's not that what he was saying wasn't valid. It's just that for whatever reason, the, the tone and the visuals and the everything, like it just, felt like it didn't feel as earnest as Bruce usually is, which is funny because the the words that are being spoken are some of the most overly earnest things that have ever come out of his mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it kind of felt calculated and commercial and all the things that a commercial is, because that's, that's how that, it works. Yeah. But I feel like you almost missed an opportunity. It's like you have this guy who is a natural storyteller, who is a natural, uh, he, he, bring like he is an inspirational speaker and an inspirational figure and so i almost feel like what happened there is that somebody wrote trying to sound like bruce springsteen instead of just letting bruce into the writer's room what i found interesting is and and i don't remember who tweeted this but um showing the diversity of the extreme left and the extreme right uh, reactions to the ad tells mm-hmm. you how far away from the middle we are as a society, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, like how how can one thing tick off both sides so much? Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, part of that honestly is the uh, and and I'm like I don't want to get into the actual yeah. politics of it, but part yeah. of the answer for that is literally just the the idea that 
for a lot of people on both sides of the political aisle in this country, the notion of trying to appeal to everybody is inherently flawed because they think the other side's evil. There's a chunk of people on the right and a chunk of people on the left who are both going to be like, you. Uh, but you know, that's, this, there's, there's an element of that. That's going to be uh, inevitably, it's going to make people upset. And again, I don't like, I, you could have a whole separate conversation about whether getting upset about something like that is a valid perspective or not, but it, that's just reality. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily the content as it was the overall message of like trying to get along. Yeah. Upset a lot of people on the fringes. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, the idea, how, where was this look for the middle when Trump was president and how dare you ask me to go to the middle on someone who doesn't want people to vote that are racist that, you know, crazy. Um, Well, and I'll, I will say, uh, as kind of a button on the Jeep conversation, yeah. uh, the, the overwhelming thought that I was left with uh, wasn't necessarily overly positive or overly negative, but the, it was after 50 years of never having done a commercial, this is the one he picks. Yeah. Like that seemed so, like it seems like such a weird choice. And I, I, I feel like maybe it's just he felt like in this moment. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was the time and it was less about the ad than about the moment. I think so. And I think it is uh, Betsy Hodges was on the podcast and she was talking about, I think they offered him, as she said, I think they offered him a lot of money to talk about something that he believes in. And so therefore mm-hmm. he was able to do it and find it. Uh, yeah. One last Springsteen talk. And then we're going to go to uh, our discussion about your Indiegogo project. Um, are you enjoying the Springsteen and Barack Obama conversations? I, I am with a slight asterisk, which is only that uh, most, it, because I have read Obama's books and I have yeah. listened to Bruce my whole life, uh, it's a very entry level podcast on some levels. Yes. Like there's a lot of these conversations. It's like, I've heard both halves of this. It, it's kind of like, Bruce and Obama are just like bouncing their aphorisms back and forth at each other. And they're both very intelligent, very articulate sets of aphorisms, but it's all stuff that if you know, these men you have heard before. Uh, And so I think that the, the, the best elements of it are the moments when they when they get deep enough into the conversation that they're not talking philosophy anymore that you see the humanity of these two guys talking and then you'll get things like where obama asks him like a direct question about clarence or a direct question about and that's when the good stuff tends to come out because first of all uh, it gives bruce a chance to say something that isn't something he said in 14 interviews right but also uh it it provides you a really sharp insight into what it is that is important to president Obama about mm-hmm. Bruce and the music and, and what it is yeah. they're talking about. Um, I, I find it curious that they essentially set it up. It, it feels like Obama interviewing Springsteen. That's what the show feels like. And I, I'm, I'm almost like, logically you would think it would be Springsteen interviewing Obama because yeah. like, uh, Obama was a president of the United States. Uh, 
but it, I, there's no real perfect way to do it because they are both very good storytellers. Yes. And I think that no matter who you put in the position of being the guy who's just asking questions, that person's going to get kind of the short shrift. Yeah, and so and I, I think probably what happened is that because Obama is a huge Springsteen fan, he was just like, no, this is the way I want to do it. Well, and, you know, I do think that you do have some of those where, you know, Springsteen like, tell me the amazing grace story. What, what yeah. how did that happen? And, and the talking about, um, I do, one of the things I love, and I don't know how much of that is uh, shtick, but the idea that, you know, Michelle Obama connecting to Patty and mm-hmm. like the wives, like, okay, they bonded and okay, you need to spend more time with this guy, right? Like, yeah, because he yeah. seems it, and, and it does seem like they have a good friendship. Uh, I saw yeah. somebody complaining that it shouldn't be called renegades and they're, you know, all this stuff. Um, I, I think that's marketing. I think the idea yeah. is you have two very smart and popular people talking. And uh, it is it's it's pretty fun. Yeah. And I think, too, that like any title you pick for it, somebody's going to be pedantic and say, well, that doesn't work. Um, I I feel like probably they wanted it to just be called Born in the USA. And then Mm -hmm. Bruce sold a song catalog and you run into some issues of having to compensate somebody for that. (laughs) Um, That'd be my guess. Maybe I'm wrong. No, Uh, no, you could be. All right. Um, You have a project going on. I do. So I'm, let's I'm, talk a little bit about this. Sure thing. I'm writing a book and uh, it isn't about Springsteen, but it does uh, definitely involve popular music. And uh, it's it's called Best Movie Ever, an oral history of Elfant and Kaplan's Josie and the Pussycats. Uh, now, people who uh, were kind of alive and cognizant in 2001, which is basically anybody over 30 probably, uh we'll probably remember that Josie and the Pussycats came out that year and was a bomb at the theaters uh my book kind of traces from the development and production of the movie through it becoming a cult classic uh because on the internet it's now found uh a very embracing audience and you'll get things like special screenings where people show up in cosplay and sing at the screen like Rocky Horror so one of the things I think first is uh, I was a big fan of Kevin, Kevin Pollock's chat show. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he really did some really good long form interviews. Talk about that would be interesting him interviewing Bruce, uh, yeah. you know, because he seems to do. Um, but, you know, I remember him saying no one tries to make a crappy movie. Yeah. Right. Understand that. So, um, when we talked and uh, I saw your campaign, you know, I immediately reached out to you. Hey, Rusty, you need some help promoting it. And you said that mm-hmm. would be great. So I had never watched the movie. Mm-hmm. Just right. And know. so probably like 90 percent of everybody, you figured like the reason that it bombed was because it was a terrible adaptation of a 70s cartoon. <laughs> yeah. So um, so I last weekend, my wife was out of town. And, uh, you know, I had to, I, I had to, I, I needed to watch some Doctor Who episodes because I'm going to talk about them on the Doctor Who podcast. Mm -hmm. And I had, um, you know, on the Amazon Fire Stick, I put Josie and the Pussycats in there and I pull it up and I'm like, oh, that was funny. Oh, that was good. Oh, this is pretty good. Wow. That music's actually pretty decent. 
And um, I ended up truly enjoying the movie. Not, oh, it's so bad, it's good. I'm like, yeah, this is this is one of those, and this will show you how old I am. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, you would go to Blockbuster. None of the new releases were out. You'd pick up a VHS because, well, let's try it. And yeah. you'd go, wow, that was unexpectedly nice. Wow, yeah. I'm glad, glad we found that. Well, it's, it's funny that you say that that tells you how old you are because that's kind of the premise of our video store podcast Yeah, is this, this idea that like that's missing now. Because first of all, nothing's ever out of stock. Right. And secondly, uh, even when you're browsing, uh, it's a it's a whole different animal browsing in a world yeah. where it's where all of the thumbnails look exactly the same because that's how marketing has decided they looked. Yes. Versus walking through a store where it's like not all VHS tapes look the same. And even if they do have the same marketing look like that marketing look is going to be spread out over 25 years and there's going to be different. You yeah. Know. And so. Uh, you're you're comp- like that idea is actually something that I think about a lot. Um, yeah. And that's something we do talk about a little bit in, in the book is mm-hmm. I spoke I spoke to a guy who used to manage a blockbuster mm-hmm. about how this movie performed on home video after it bombed at the box office. Yeah, um, because when I spoke to there's so I talked to cast crew experts and then fans and the ch- the chunk on fans, a lot of it is just talking to people who fell in love with this movie and saying like, okay, so when did you fall in love with this movie? When did you realize that it was a flop? Mm-hmm. When did you realize that it had developed this cult following, you know? Yeah. And trying to track like, okay, so how did this happen? Because like one of the things I find really interesting about Josie is that it's one of the very first of kind of a new generation of cult classics that had to find its audience organically often on the internet yeah um because when you look at something like tremors tremors bombed at the box office but then it was the number one most rented movie in 1991 okay and so it made so much money on tape that immediately they were like okay sequel right and you know mall rats uh bombed at the box office but then was a huge renter and uh universal never really appreciated it in the way that fans did but <clears throat> at the same time kevin smith continued to be a hot commodity it didn't hurt his career in the way that yes. josie and the pussycats really hurt uh, harry Alfont and deb kaplan's career they did this movie coming off of uh can't hardly wait and everybody's like oh the can't hardly wait guys we want them forever mm-hmm. and then uh they never did another feature film after josie wow uh, I mean, they, they've written feature films and they've they've done a lot of TV there. They show run right now a show called Liza on Demand, which is on YouTube, which is really funny. OK, but um, they've this was their last feature film. And it's funny because in the commentary track for the movie, they 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 recorded the commentary track after the movie bombed. OK. And so there is a joke in the commentary track where uh, Harry says, like, oh, we should do this next. And Deb's like, you think they're ever going to make us, let us make another movie? Yeah, it's just like, ooh. <laughs> How funny uh, and sad. Um, so um, it's, and, and if you haven't seen the movie, I don't want to spoil it, but it's it's a clever plot. Mm-hmm. Um, amazing cast. Yeah, I mean, the cast when, is really. I mean, like um, 
you know, Rachel E. Cook is Josie, and then mm-hmm. the other two pussycats are Tara Reed and Rosaria Dawson. When I think those three, a lot of people who remember that the movie exists would be mm-hmm. able to identify those three because they were all on all the posters. Yeah. But like the villains were Alan Cumming and Parker Posey, who had yeah. just worked together on the anniversary party like five minutes before. Well, and, then... and so one of the things I did mm-hmm. uh, during the lockdown is I had not watched the new Lost in Space reboot. Yeah. And so I I caught that up during this lockdown. Like it, and I went, oh my God, Parker Posey is amazing oh, yeah. as Dr. Smith, right? Like, or you know, and then I'm I'm all Alan Cumming, I'm just a huge fan of, regardless. I mean, yeah. he is, you know, he was amazing in The Good Wife. Uh, you know, he's just anything he does is amazing. And when I see him, I'm like, oh, wow, that's a really yeah. cool. It's um, funny. He did an unaired TV pilot based mm-hmm. on one of my very favorite movies, this this thing called Zero Effect. Okay. And uh, it was a, originally it was Ben Stiller and Bill Pullman. It's like a riff on Sherlock Holmes. Okay. Uh, but it, it, whereas most Holmes riffs focus on the genius part of his like tortured drug addled genius, mm-hmm. uh, zero effect kind of focuses on the tortured part of his tortured okay. drug addled genius. And so uh, they made this movie. I loved it. It made, you know, it made its budget back, but it was like a two and a half million dollar movie. They were never going to, it was never going to be a huge hit. Um, ironically, the, the writer director, Jake Kasdan has since gone on to do the, new jumanji movies which are huge hits Mm -hmm. um but uh so they made a tv pilot based on zero effect the idea was that cbs i think at one point wanted to have it as a tv show and alan cumming got cast as the main character as daryl zero and uh so during during my interview with alan for the book one of the things that i uh that i did was I included zero effect in a list with like X-Men and some other stuff of like the franchises he was doing at the time. And so uh, I, for the first time ever uh, in his like native accent, uh, I actually heard Alan Cummings say the words zero effect. And I'm just like, there's something funny about this to me. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, so the other thing that I found very interesting is in, in a lot of ways, the subplot of the film is how modern entertainment, TV's film, music drives mm-hmm. consumerism. Yeah. Yeah. And, and vice versa. Yes. And there is, and you shocked me when you told this, there is product placement throughout the movie. I mean, yeah. not subtle product placement. No, but it's, like, it's, the word would be pervasive. <laughs> yeah. Like when there's two characters talking and in the back on the wall is uh Reeboks or, you know, something. Yeah. It is just, and you each, said. Each of the three girls, their hotel room was themed to a different brand. Yes. So like when you were in Josie's room, it was, I think, uh, some cosmetic company and I'm blanking on it yeah. at the moment. Uh, Clear, Cl- Clinique maybe. Uh, but then like in, uh, in Val's room, Rosario Dawson's room, everything was Target. And yes. so the, you, you get a scene where she's having a very emotional moment and she's very sad. And the like pillow essentially that she's hugging to her chest isn't a pillow, it's the Target dog. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and you said none of that was paid for. 
No, none of that was paid for, which it actually was one of the key uh, misunderstandings of a lot of the early reviews. A lot of reviews would be like, how can you have a movie that's all about uh, criticizing product placement, but it's packed with product placement? And the answer is like that, well, A, that it wasn't paid for, but B, the directors intentionally made the decision. Like they talked about it at first. They're like, do we do like Morley cigarettes and Duff beer or do we get... Mm -hmm you know, permission to use the AOL logo. Yeah. And they went with real brands because they thought that the commentary would be muted mm -hmm. if it was all pretend brands. Yeah. Because it's not asking anybody to confront uncomfortable truths about the things that they're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you can make Duff Beer evil. Right. And it doesn't change anybody's day-to-day -day life. Right. Who wrote uh, the music? Uh, the, the music was written by like a writer's room okay uh the adam schlesinger uh from fountains of wayne who recently passed away due to covid uh, -huh. uh was the guy who did their main single that you see in the, the musical montage in the movie okay um very the, talented guy yeah yeah <laughs> yeah um the record was produced partially by schlesinger and partially by kenny babyface edmonds because what happened was babyface was the producer on the record until they realized that they hadn't recorded enough music to fill a whole soundtrack record. Mm -hmm. And so they went back and recorded like an extra five tracks or something with Schlesinger producing. Um, Jane Weedland from the Go-Go's uh, was one of the songwriters. There was a guy, a guy called Dave Gibbs who uh, was one of the songwriters. Um, there was like five or six people who were in this writer's room. And then also uh, Harry and Deb, the directors were involved actively with some of the songwriting um mm -hmm. i know that harry and deb were the ones who wrote all the lyrics for the du jour songs which okay. du jour is uh the boy band that appears in the movie that's it's essentially like a lampoon of in sync okay uh right down to having the uh music video in the airplane tarmac or the airport tarmac excuse me um but uh their songs are like the most parodic of the movie they're the ones that feel like we're, we're actively poking fun at, at these things. Mm -hmm. Whereas the Josie songs by and large, they're really, they're re like, they, they feel dated because they were made in 2001, but they were, they're like legitimately good kind of pop punk songs, like mall punk kind yeah. of, you know, if, if you like that kind of music, I think it would be hard not to like the record. Uh, yeah. If you actively disdain that kind of music, you probably wouldn't like it, but that's just genre, not, not quality. Um, but they were all performed by uh, Letters to Cleo's Kate Han Kay Hanley. Okay. Um, with a bunch of session musicians that included Schlesinger and some others. So let's talk about your campaign. What are you, um, what are you trying to accomplish? Uh, you were going to write a book, yeah. uh, but you're asking for a little bit of help, correct? Yeah, I'm crowdfunding essentially the production costs of the book. And uh, there's a couple of reasons why. First of all, I have a couple of like boutique publishers who are interested, but because they're smaller publishers, they the book needs to basically be done. So I can hand it to them and be like, okay, publish this. Yes. Um, which means certain costs like paying for a professional editor, paying to get all these dozens and dozens of hours of interviews transcribed, um, paying for somebody to, to design the look of the book, like the actual book, the pages, yes. the font and all that. Um, these are things that somebody has to pay for. And so basically what I'm doing is I'm telling people like, look, I've got 80% of my interviews done already. Uh, if I were to stop what I'm doing right now and just put together a draft, it would still be the most exhaustive look at Josie and the Pussycats 
that has ever existed. Minus maybe uh, there was a podcast last year called Josie and the Podcats by an Australian uh, DJ and author named Maria Lewis. And it's terrific. And I, one, of, one of my big challenges actually has been telling the story in a comprehensive way without copying what she did. Okay. Like it's, it's tough because like you get certain things where it's just like, I need an expert on Archie comics. I don't want to use the same expert on Archie Comics that she used, but there's only a certain number of experts exactly, on Archie yes. Comics. And so uh, little things like that. And and I also, uh, just a look at a peek into the, how the sausage is made on something like this. You always want new stuff. You always want new anecdotes. You want to unearth right. things that haven't previously come out. Um, and so when I was talking to the directors, we talked for you know almost two hours and I got a lot of good stuff that nobody had ever see, heard before. But as I was starting to assemble things, I realized like, oh, I was so focused on getting new, interesting content. I didn't ask them like the things that all the hardcore fans already know. Right. So like Beyonce Knowles edition for the movie. Okay. And uh, the, the directors have kind of a well-worn anecdote about her audition and how she like, she was very polite. She was very quiet. She sat in the middle of the floor when she was doing her audition um, and like, I didn't get that quote because like, I've heard it so many times that my brain was like, okay, we can move past that. But it's like, no, I actually, I need to go back. And in my wrap up interview, I need to get them to tell me. Yes. Like the greatest hits stories, so to speak. Yeah, like the things they sense. told everybody. Um, yeah. but in any event, um, so if I were to stop what I'm doing now, it would be probably the, the deepest anybody has ever gone into this movie by a, a decent margin. And it would be a really fun, readable book. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, so that's the level of completion I'm at. Um, but I'm basically telling people like pre-order because I know there's going to be a book. Like even if I had had to go out of pocket to just make a small paperback run, it would have happened. Yeah. Um, that's not going to happen now because the, the numbers that I had to hit in order to pay my editor and uh, the, the guy who's, who's designing the book actually has still not given me an amount other than that he wants a pair of prop headphones from the movie. Okay. Um, I have a small collection of props from Josie and the Pussycats and most of them I put up for sale as part of the crowdfunding campaign. Um, what about this? What? Cause I'm, I was, I'm, I'm kind of doing what you did. I, you know, I'm immediately going to the mechanics, but what about this movie drove you to, you know what? I think this story needs to be told. Uh, it's a few things. First of all, uh, I watched the movie when it came out and I enjoyed it but I hadn't thought about it in years. And then I was watching, I, I was on Reddit and Rachel Lee Cook was doing some AMA for some other project. I don't know what. And somebody like directed her like, oh, you should check out this thread. It's all about how much like people love Josie and the Pussycats now. It was like five, six, seven years ago. And so like Rachel dropped what she was doing and went and like personally thanked a bunch of people in this Josie and the Pussycats thread to be like, man, we're really proud of that movie. I'm really glad that, that it's finding an audience because like at the time nobody watched it. And I thought that's like really cool, really classy thing to do. I should watch that movie again sometime. And so I watched the movie again and I was like, man, there's a lot more in here that I didn't pick up on when I was like 21 and watching because Rachel Lee Cook is cute, you know? And so I, uh, it was one of the two movies we talked about in the first episode of the Emerald city video podcast when we started that five years ago or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And um, so basically since then I've had this idea that like, there's something there like, and part of this is honestly just because I work in the entertainment media. And if you want to know basically anything about 
the Avengers movie. Right. You can find it out because the combination of like every molecule of every tentpole movie being covered to death by a hundred different entertainment sites and everybody having social media and everybody having camera phones and every, you know, it's like these things are like the, the demand that fans have always had to know more and see more and have more of their favorite movie or favorite record or whatever. Now it's more or less satisfied. Right. Like we, we no longer have to wait for the 30th anniversary reissue of born to run to get a documentary about the making of like, no letter to you. It came out the same day as the record, yes. you know? And so as a reporter who like, that's what I do. I help become part of this white noise that covers everything to death. Um, I thought this is, a, this is a good movie. There's a lot of really cool people in it. There's got to be some good stories here. And so years ago, I started kind of half-heartedly putting together notes for like, what if I did a book? What if I did an oral history? What if I did like whatever? And uh, at the time, I backed off because they were releasing the, the soundtrack record on vinyl for the first time. And the press release for the thing said, Oh, and included in the uh, in the record is an oral history of the movie. And I was like, oh, somebody's doing it. Great. Uh, so I buy the record and the interviews they had in there were terrific, but it was like 14 pages. And it was basically Harry, Deb, Rachel, and nobody else. And they didn't really talk about the production of the movie. They, they glanced at it, but they, they really mostly talked about the phenomenon of... Uh, how it became a cult classic and also okay. about the soundtrack. And uh, so I was like, okay, well that, that was cool, but it's not what I thought it was going to be. So I started potentially gathering plans again to maybe do one. And then I heard that Josie and the podcast was happening and I was like, okay, well I don't, it's a niche property. I didn't want to step on anybody's toes because like there's right. only so many people who are going to buy a book about this. Um, and so like, this is the third kind of iteration of me being like, okay, I want to do a Josie and the Pussy Gets book. Um, and, but the, it's, it remains uh, two, basically two big elements. One is, like I said, I think that there's stories to be told, which if the movie was made now, we would be hearing all the time. Yeah. And then two, that narrative that they did in that initial oral history really is interesting. Like this notion of something that, was widely regarded as a flop uh -huh. suddenly like having everybody do these like retrospect you know there was it's not just like people on twitter like if you google josie and the pussycats one of the first things that comes up is a story from the la times that says uh josie and the pussycats was way ahead of its time okay and like the la times is a paper that gave it a terrible review at the time but years later they they kind of look back on it and they're just like oh we see what they were doing yeah. <laughs> um, and so I think there's a, there's a really interesting narrative arc to that. Like there's a really interesting narrative arc to this idea that we can later on realize that we misunderstood something as a culture. And then also, honestly, uh, there's a weird element to Josie that isn't there for a lot of other movies, which is I think part of the reason it took so long to become a quote unquote cult classic is because the idea of cult classics itself is very gendered. You know, uh, Fight Club comes out in 1999 and by 2000, it's a cult classic. 
Um, yeah. But like, it takes a lot longer for something like Josie. And I think a lot of that is because when you think, when you just say cult classic, most of the movies you think of skew heavily male with the exception of maybe Rocky Horror, Yeah. you know? And so I think that there's an element of that too that's interesting to look at. Like the idea that this is a movie, it's not really overtly feminist, but it did come out as part of this like pop feminist wave of movies that included uh, Charlie's Angels and Spice World and a bunch of stuff like that. And uh, Coyote Ugly even. Yeah. So go ahead, Russell, I'm sorry. But but so like there's all of these different kind of pieces that I, I think are really interesting. And like part of the idea of the book is taking these and putting them together and seeing if they fit or if they're just kind of interesting things that exist. So if someone wants to help and wants an early copy of the book, how do they get it? Uh you, go, you can go to Indiegogo and search Josie and the Pussycats, and that's you'll find it right away. Okay. Uh, it's igg.me slash at slash Josie book, okay. uh, which Josie is J-O-S-I-E. Okay. And then, uh, or you can go to josiebook.com uh, where I have a newsletter set up. And uh, that doesn't, like, I'm too, I, I have not updated that website since I set it up, so it doesn't have a link to the campaign. Uh, but when you sign up for the newsletter, the next thing you get a couple of days later, we'll have a link to the campaign because everything that I send out has a link to the campaign in it. Sure. Um, But yeah, so that's, and then starting in May or so, once I have given the first draft to my editor, Uh um, we're going to be available for pre-order on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and stuff like that. We're going to be publishing, uh, publishing through uh, Ingram spark, which is essentially the Ingram book distributor self-publishing arm okay, um, for all of the pre-orders. And that may disappear if somebody does buy the book, because again, yeah. I've had a couple of people who were interested in it. Um, but in the time between when my first draft is done and when there's a final answer as to whether or not somebody else is going to have it, anything that we sell on Ingram Spark, those orders will be fulfilled on August, on or by August 16th. Awesome. Um, August 16th, we carved out as the release date for the book because it is the anniversary of the day the, the movie came out on VHS and DVD. Very nice. Very uh, good. The actual 20th anniversary of Josie and the Pussycats is April 9th. Mm-hmm. That's when it came to theaters. And uh, I am doing something. Uh, I still okay. can't say what in specific, but if you follow me on Twitter, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to have like a little uh, event on april 9th april 9th uh that is gonna be like a fun little celebration of the 20th anniversary of the movie and, and also your, i i should say just uh, because your I, twitter uh, handle Don't oh russ, give your twitter. yeah yeah russ burlingame r-u-s-s-b-u-r-l-i-n-g-a-m-e yes uh one thing is if you're interested in this movie uh <clears throat> or if you just think like this is a crazy person and it may be fun to watch him slowly descend into madness either way uh if you pre-order by March 21st, which is my birthday, it's a mm-hmm. week from today, and I don't know if the show will be out by then, so this might be I'll make sure list. it is. Um, but if you pre-order by March 21st, uh, on April 9th, there's going to be a special, like, bonus perk, basically, okay. uh, that a buddy of mine and I are putting together. And I don't want to go into what it is exactly, because I feel like it's it's going to be a nice thing to just drop and be like, ha-ha, cool digital goodies. Um, but it's, uh, it's an idea that we had early on. We're like, Oh, wouldn't it be fun to do this? Yeah. And, uh, and it's coming along nicely. And I, I, the only reason I put March 21st as the kind of cutoff date is because there's things that have to be prepped 
And so I wanted the two weeks before the campaign ends and the two weeks before the anniversary to uh, to do all the prop. Uh, the the campaign itself ends actually on April 11th. Okay. So the event that I do on April 9th for the uh, the 20th anniversary of the film's release will double as kind of the last big push that I do to get people to pre-order on the Indiegogo campaign. Awesome. Russ, thank you so much. Um, hey, thanks going, for having me. No, no, this is great. What I want to do is go ahead. I'm telling you in advance after publication or right before I want you back on and we're going to talk just more about the book. I have questions about who you didn't get to talk to. Was there anyone you wanted? What surprised you? So we're going to say about that. Well, and we'll, we'll, we'll know more about that soon. I actually have one person in particular who uh, there's, there's a whole fun story to the pursuit of this interview. And uh, it's still unknown how it, how that story ends exactly. <laughs> All right, that sounds good. All right, thank you, Russ. I appreciate so much. Once again, right. Josie and the Pussycats, uh, go to Indiegogo, check it out. He's at Russ Burlingame on Twitter. From there, you can get the link. Um, listeners, thank you so much for listening. Please go support this program. Remember to wash your hands. Remember to social distance. Wear an F and bass. Take care of yourself, and we will talk to you soon. Goodbye. Doing a podcast at times can be a one-way conversation, and I hate that. So please let me know what you like and don't like about the work I'm doing. You can reach the podcast via email at setlustingbruce at gmail.com. The show is on Twitter, at SetLustingBruce, and my personal Twitter is at DFW. We have a website, www.setlustingbruce.com. From there, you can find links to other Springsteen podcasts, as well as other music-themed podcasts. We have a page devoted to our own SLB All-Star Band. These are guests who have been on the podcast more than three times. There is a link to our store where you can purchase Set Lessing Bruce shirts as well as a Mary Question t-shirt. There is a link to our Patreon page where you can sign up to help support the podcast financially. We have different levels and different rewards based on your support. If you don't have any extra cash, and right now who does, you can support the podcast by subscribing via your favorite podcast player and leaving us a review. The more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find us. And please tell a friend about the podcast, especially if they love Bruce or music, because it will make a difference. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only. Set Listing Bruce. Bruce is part of the Southgate Media Podcast Group. The theme for Set Listing Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.